This episode of the Roast West Coast Coffee Podcast is sponsored by Leap Coffee Roasters. Be sure to check out their recently redesigned website, www.leap.coffee, and order a bag of coffee for pickup or delivery. You can order on www.leap.coffee. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Roast West Coast Coffee Podcast, where we interview the coffee professionals of the West Coast, and we try to get a little coffee smarter in the process. I am your host, Ryan Wolt. Today, Chris O'Brien, the founder, owner, and operator of Coffee Cycle Cafe in Pacific Beach, California, joins us on our last show of this coffee podcast in Season 2. This is the part of the show where I usually make a joke about Chris, but today I won't, because I am just filled with gratitude for his efforts to help provide a little bit of coffee education to me and this show for the past two seasons. On this season, we've had the opportunity to talk with coffee professionals from the farming side of the industry. Earlier, we interviewed Jay Rusky, the founder of Fringe Coffee, who is working to create a domestic coffee farming industry. And then more recently, we heard from Kyle Rosa, who became one of the farmers in the Fringe Network when he started Blue Tail Coffee Grove. On today's Coffee Smarter, I asked Chris for his opinion on the concept of domestic coffee farming, which gets us into a deeper discussion about fair trade, how we value the work of coffee farms, and our relationship as coffee drinkers to the farmers. I hope you enjoy it. Follow at coffee-cycle on Instagram to stay up to date on the happenings at Chris's shop and head to roastwestcoast.com to sign up for a newsletter subscription. Even though Season 2 is ending, I am officially announcing right now a Season 3 is coming out in the fall, and I already have more content planned for the newsletter on RoastWestCoast.com throughout the summer. You can sign up for free right now, but if you have found value in the show, please consider a paid subscription so I can keep expanding on the Roast West Coast mission to uplift the coffee community, support local coffee roasters and shops, and help the experts drop some coffee knowledge on all of us. By now, you should know that your coffee mug should be full because we are about to get into it with Chris and hopefully come out the other side a little coffee smarter. Hey, Chris. How are you? I'm really well, Ryan. How are you? It's so nice to see that face of yours. Well, thank you. It's nice to see you as well. Uh, welcome back to the very last Coffee Smarter session of season two that you and I have together. It's gone quick. It feels like it all just happened in like a blink. It does feel that way a bit, but it was like it was like a really nice blink. I really, yeah. I've really enjoyed this season, and I really feel like. I don't know. Every one of these questions has been just so much fun to dig into. So I just thank you for just hosting this and for having such a great guest list this season. It's just, it's just been a real pleasure to be a part of it. Well, thank you. I know last, last season, season one, we kind of finished the year off where you uh, gave a, a very impassioned speech about what coffee means to you. And I encourage anyone listening to go back and listen to that because it really is moving. Uh, and today's question, I think we're going to end up, is a little deeper as well. So there's some things I want to clarify before I ask it. One is you mentioned this uh, in a previous show, I think maybe last week or two weeks ago, but uh, but I'll clarify that you are, you don't have a background in agriculture, as far as I know. 
I wrote this down and it sounds terrible out loud, but I'm saying it anyway. <laughs> You're a fisher, meaning you follow the band fish. You are not a farmer. Yeah, you should just trim that out of the, the whole the whole thing. Just edit that right. <laughs> I'll see I'll see how it works. I was really proud of that wordplay. I think it might look better on paper than it does. It uh, definitely in does. Podcast <laughs> form. But uh, but you, you even though you're not a farmer, you're not an agriculture person, you do have decades of experience in the coffee industry. You have a dearth of knowledge about coffee as a commodity and and just how roasters and cafes and shops interact with your farming partners. You've mentioned your your farming partners in Costa Rica uh, and coffee operations from overseas. So what I want to talk to you about or ask you about is, is uh, kind of a recent trend, which is the growth of domestic coffee farming. Uh, here in SoCal in particular, we're, we're more aware of it, I think, than most. Uh, it's gained some traction and attention over the past few years uh, locally in North County. Uh, musician Jason Mraz opened his Mraz Family Farms. Uh, Fringe Coffee, which is from further north, has been creating kind of a patchwork of, of affiliated coffee farms throughout Southern California. For anyone listening to this, if you missed it, I did interview Jay uh, Ruski from Fringe uh, Coffee earlier this season. You can, you can go back and catch that interview. Why is this concept of a locally grown coffee becoming more popular now? And why didn't coffee become just a popular domestic crop like corn or wheat earlier, uh, especially considering the popularity of coffee worldwide? It's obviously one of the biggest uh, commodities in the world. And and do we think this is a good thing or a bad thing? Are we indifferent about this trend? You know, this idea that, that coffee is all of a sudden being grown locally as an alternative to, say, bringing coffee in from, from over the border. Well, I love supporting local farms. I work with some local farms to get our, our honey at the shop and to get our avocados that we use for, for some of our products. So there's definitely some some benefit to that. But, you know, this topic really touches on a lot of things that I'm, I'm passionate about in coffee because, you know, I, I like drinking my cup of coffee in the morning. I like sharing cups of coffee with other people. But if a tragedy occurred and I was no longer medically able to drink coffee, I would still love to be a part of this, this coffee world and still love to do what I'm doing because of the opportunity to do some really cool cool things uh, internationally with um, with a market that touches and affects so many people and has such a potential to make such a positive impact. So when we think about coffee and where it's grown, there's sort of, uh, well, it's what's, it's what's described as the coffee belt. And if you look at a map of the world and you look at all the countries that coffee is grown in, most of those countries that coffee is grown in fall in what we call the coffee belt, but which is really fairly delineated by the tropics, the Tropic of Cancer and the Tropic of Capricorn. So you're thinking mostly equatorial, fairly hot, humid, you know, kind of environments. But if you look at it, it does get beyond the tropics. And up here in San Diego, we are outside of the tropics. It's not tropical. It's nice here, but it's not technically tropical. And so how can you grow coffee here? If it's delineated by the tropics and especially Jay Rusky fringe coffee is up in Santa Barbara and Goleta, which is just over the mountains from Santa Barbara is even further north than us. So even further outside of the tropics, I haven't actually listened to your, your chat with Jay yet, but he might talk about some things that I've, I've heard about from him 
is that we have this concept of really high quality coffee being grown at high elevations. And part of the thought process in growing coffee up here in San Diego and up, up there in, in Goleta and Santa Barbara is why do we like high elevation coffee? And the thought behind this, this rationalization is that high elevation can have multiple effects on the climate that the coffee is, is maturing in. But it's postulated that the reason that we like this high elevation coffee is because at those higher elevations in the tropics, there's a greater difference between daytime temperatures and nighttime temperatures. And that has a beneficial effect on the maturation of sugars inside the coffee cherry. So you can get a similar effect, if not the same effect, by growing at a lower elevation, say at Mraz Family Farms or at the Goleta Farms that Fringe Coffee works with, but at a higher latitude. So we're hoping that this Southern California coffee growing, even though it's at a lower elevation, is actually going to mimic a lot of the climate that creates really high quality coffee that we see in these tropical regions at high elevations. But if we come back and we're thinking again about this coffee belt and what we've thought of as the coffee belt, think why is it that coffee's grown there and not outside of the coffee belt? If we can grow it outside of the coffee belt here in San Diego, why has it been in all these tropical countries and in this, this coffee belt? And the one thing that is pretty easy to find as a correlation between all these countries that we commonly get coffee from is that they're all third world countries. They're all countries that really are not very well advanced in their industry, agriculture, and economy. And so it's, a, it's possible to look at these origin countries of coffee as remnants of imperial colonialism and as extensions of that imperial colonialism into sort of a capitalist imperialism that we see with the global commodities market. Now, I just threw some fancy sounding words that made me sound all expert and people that are experts that are listening might be raising some eyebrows and sort of pausing and, 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 and you know, questioning me here a little bit. <clears throat> but if you just think about it and you think about coffee grown in Colombia and Guatemala and Ethiopia and Indonesia, you know, every one of those countries has thriving culture, amazing people. They're not, it's nice to sit up here in the first world and think, Oh, you know, like I, I, I had this, <laughs> I had this, uh, girl asked my Brazilian coworker once, uh, when she learned, learned that my, my coworker was from Brazil, she said, Oh, so you guys live in trees. It's like, okay, we don't, <laughs> let's, let's take a step back and recognize that when we say third world countries, that these places are actually beautiful, wonderful places that have beautiful cities and an incredible people and culture. And I, I don't want to downplay any of that, but economically and development wise, when we think about the technology that we're using on American farms versus, you know, uh, Nicaraguan farms, it's just, it's just different. It's very different. And it's different because of you know, an economic impact that's, that's that's happening here versus there. Coffee is actually grown or has been grown for a while in the first world, in a notable exception, 
and it's it's American. It's Hawaii. We've all heard of Hawaiian coffee before. And so the idea of growing coffee in the first world is not totally abhorrent or unusual. Um, it's definitely unusual, but it's not totally out there. And Hawaiian coffee is notoriously expensive. And you can serve a coffee as a Kona Hawaiian coffee if it only has 10% Hawaiian coffee in it. Hmm. That's interesting. Because it'd be like 10% Hawaiian and then mixed with, say, Brazilian or Mexican. I, I'm pretty right. sure. I, I know that you can serve a coffee as Kona when it's only 10% Kona. It might need to be all Hawaiian with only 10% Kona. But the only reason I bring that up is, um, even though I'm not fully knowledgeable about it, clearly, is that it's so expensive to get this, this Hawaiian coffee that they can even dilute it down to 10% you know, and, and still sell it as Hawaiian. Um, and that's because you're paying for Hawaiian real estate and you're paying for American labor. You're paying American Hawaiian minimum, minimum wage. So a lot of coffee harvesting is best done by hand. Brazil, which is the largest coffee producing country, they produce the most coffee of any country in the world, uh, also has the highest automated coffee harvesting. Uh, they use the most mechanical harvesting in Brazil compared to anywhere else in the world. Um, but Brazilian coffee doesn't have the same reputation as some Colombian coffees, some Guatemalan coffees because of that, because they use this automated harvesting and it, it does bring the average of their coffee down a little bit because coffee ripens on its cherries unevenly. When you have a coffee shrub and you have, you know, a branch with a bunch of cherries, all the cherries on that branch are not going to be perfectly ripe on the same day. And so it takes a skilled and experienced coffee picker to pick only the ripest cherries. Even in countries where they're doing most of the harvesting by hand, it actually still depends on a certain level of expertise in the most entry level of, of farm jobs to do the best job possible, which has a really high impact on your end result. It's really easy for a coffee picker. And I mean, I'm not out there sweating in these fields for 12 hours a day. So when I say easy, this is a relative term. It's really easy for a coffee picker to just grab that branch and pull all the cherries off that branch and shove them in the basket before they bring it back to the collection area. Uh, it's a lot harder for someone to fill the basket that they're carrying by picking individual cherries off and making sure that they only pick the ripest cherries. And so it's even harder for a machine to do the best job possible and pull only the ripest cherries off. You're going to get some mixing. So all this just serves to highlight some of the problems that Hawaiian coffee gr growers already face and problems that California coffee growers will face. And the solution is. What Brazil has already done, which is to introduce more mechanical harvesting and compromise your coffee quality based on that. So Hawaii coffee already has this reputation because the Hawaiian coffee reputation comes from before third wave coffee was a thing. So that, that reputation is always going to be there. Hawaiian coffee, Kona coffee, Jamaica Blue Mountain coffee, they both have this reputation from the second wave and from the first wave of being this excellent desirable thing that will always now command a higher price. So it doesn't matter if it's the crappiest coffee grown on the slopes of the Blue Mountains and Jamaica's 
roasted the crappiest and sold you with a gold ribbon around it, you're still going to pay 50 bucks for it. Same thing with the Hawaiian coffee. So that reputation helps mitigate those costs that Hawaiian coffee farmers already have to deal with of paying those minimum wages, of dealing with incredibly valuable land that they're growing this product on that generally doesn't sell for a whole lot. And so that brings us to talking about the coffee commodity market and how coffee is bought and sold around the world. And obviously, we're used to buying a cup of coffee or a bag of coffee, maybe a can of coffee if you're still a green in that first wave. But, um, you know, people that are buying these coffees, green coffees, and these giant burlap sacks, these 150-pound bags, 70 kilograms, they're buying these giant sacks of coffee. You fit 250 of these 150-pound bags in a shipping container, and you're shipping them around the world. Well, the way that you negotiate for buying coffee at that level is generally based around what we call the C price. And the C price is the commodity price of coffee. It's what coffee is traded at on, you know, basically the stock market. And it's the commodities market. It's, it's, it's the market where we buy and, buy and sell the expected price that coffee will be traded at in the near future. And so it's, it's sort of a gambling market for determining what you think coffee is worth tomorrow and the next day and looking forward. And that's by pound or by bag? It's usually by pound. So the commodity price, which is the, the price that we're expecting to pay per pound in the near future, is bought and sold based on what people are speculating it's going to be. If you follow the news at all, there was a recent uh, stock um, phenomenon and scandal that was um, about the GameStop stock. And basically, there were these people that were saying that we, we don't want... We, the hedge funds were, were betting that GameStop stock was going to go down. And then there was sort of a grassroots internet phenomenon of, of small-time investors that said, we don't want this stock to go down. And if we bet on it going up, these hedge funds lose money. You can look all about it. There's plenty of articles written about this, this whole thing. Well, the idea is that people with big money are sitting there and they're driving this price up or down by betting on what they think it's going to be. And these people with the money that are betting on it and are investing in this commodity market don't necessarily have anything to do with roasting up a product that they're trying to buy. They're just doing the speculation on it. Usually when I, I talk about this with, with people, I like to talk about the movie Trading Places um, with Eddie Murphy. And it's a wonderful movie, but the older I get and the more I did to give this talk and the more I reference the movie, the sadder I get because the more people I encounter that haven't seen this movie. Um, but in, in the movie, they, they talk about trading the futures of frozen concentrated orange juice and how the harvest of oranges in Florida is going to affect the frozen concentrated orange juice market for the next year. The real world what happens in the real world if we have like a Roya year where, where this terrible coffee disease sweeps through South and Central America, the Roya year should have a, an impact on the sea price, the commodity price, because suddenly you're going to know that for the next year, there's going to be less coffee to buy. And the rules of supply and demand tell us that with less supply and the same demand, that the commodity price should go up. There's so much money in coffee. There's so much money in coffee. It's such a highly traded commodity that 
the people betting on what the price is going to do often have a bigger impact on what the price, the C market price is. They have a bigger impact on that price than the real world conditions like Roya do. This is a problem. This is a problem if you're a coffee farmer. Because if you're a coffee farmer that's affected by Roya, you're hoping that those few pounds that you're able to produce well are going to now command a higher price on the market. But if the big money investors that are betting on the price going up and down have had a bigger impact on the commodity price than the disaster that screwed up your farm, you might not get a better price for your coffee. You might get just as bad or even a worse price for your coffee. And so this phenomenon where the C market price was artificially lowered by investors had such a bad impact years and years ago that this is what we this is when we came up with the idea of fair trade now you can go to your local store and um, specialty store or not and you can find fair trade coffee you can find fair trade sugar you can find all kinds of fair trade products now and fair trade is a response to commodity price manipulation and the best way to think about it is fair trade is sort of like a minimum wage for coffee farmers. It says that if you join a fair trade cooperative, then people who buy fair trade coffee will guarantee that will pay a minimum price for that coffee, green coffee per pound that is higher than the commodity price and significantly higher. So it makes sure that those farmers never have to deal with that artificial swing where the commodity price goes down even when they're hurting or whether they're hurting or, or doing well. They always have this sort of bare minimum price. Sure. And I had reference in, in the United States, uh, we have farm subsidies that act as in a similar way in which if the supply and demand market is, is off, the federal government will offer extra subsidies for, say, corn farmers who weren't able to sell their product at the right price uh, that they needed to survive or even sell at all. I mean, there's there's all kinds of arguments uh, for and against that, but I think you're referencing in, in some of these other countries where there aren't support systems in place. Right. So if if the sea price goes down, even though they have less product and they need more for their, their supply, they're just SOL, uh, so, so right. to speak. Uh, they're out of luck. Yeah. So, I mean, to the average consumer, this is all just high-minded talk. This doesn't really matter to them. They're like, oh, coffee is still going to be produced. It'll be fine. But when you're a third-world coffee farmer, this is life and death. This is literally feeding your family the next year. And when we talk about farm subsidies or we talk about minimum wages or we talk about fair trade, there's always going to be a bit of dissidence because those are band-aid solutions. Like we're very grateful to have them. They don't necessarily fix the problem. They help mitigate it and help manage it. And just to be clear, that problem that you're talking about is what? The manipulation of the C market price below what it quote unquote should be. Right. Making sure people get paid for their work and their labor and their product in a way that is sustainable right. uh, over time. Right. I mean, if we all enjoy drinking coffee or if we're all accepting that there are enough people drinking coffee every day, that this is a thing that we want to continue is people drinking coffee. 
we don't want the people making that coffee to starve and die. I mean, that's like, that's what it basically boils down to. And unfortunately, with the way the C market price goes, the C market price gets manipulated enough and, and manipulated might not be the best phrase for it. But when we're, when we're talking like this, it, it seems right. But the C market price gets so low so often that we have to have these systems in place. We have to do it. And it's, it's really tough when you think about the fact that fair trade came about because the C market price hit such a low thing that enough people realized that if we want coffee to continue, we need to do something. And so they came up with fair trade. And fair trade as, a, as an idea was effective enough with enough coffee farmers that it then spilled over onto you know, sugar and these other things. So great, we, we, we figured something out. But within the last couple of years, the coffee commodity price hit an all-time low. Now, to me, in the industry, saying that feels like a mic drop, okay? Because I know, I'm, I'm telling you all this stuff right now, and so I know what an impact that is. But when you think about inflation and you think about the fact that every dollar is worth you know, a little bit less every year, well, the commodity price should never hit an all-time low unless somehow there was a huge spike in supply or somehow there was a huge drop in demand. And so why is the commodity price hitting an all-time low? And it just highlights once again that this, this C price, which is what all coffee negotiations, all coffee price negotiations are based around, is not really an accurate reflector of what should be paid for coffee to keep coffee as an agricultural product sustainable. And not sustainable as in like some buzzword where it's like ethical and like the whales don't get saved and everything is happy. Sustainable, like I want to buy coffee next year, just like I bought coffee this year. I want to drink coffee for the next 10 years of my life. That's what I mean when I say sustainable. I mean, like we actually need to make sure that this product sticks around. You know, the United States consumes more coffee than any other country in the world. Brazil produces so much coffee it's it's mind-boggling how much this product is bought and sold around the world. Let's tie it all back then to this trend of of local domestic. How does that how does that impact this or why would it be a good or a bad thing or can you be on both sides of the fence? One would think that okay if it's a local farm then there are certain certain levers in place to make sure that people are getting a fair price or they're they're making a premium product or they're getting paid a certain wage although we know certainly from experience and, and the news that that doesn't always happen. But let's assume that it is in, in a domestically grown product. Is the concern then that we're taking away the livelihood of a from somebody else, a different farm that maybe maybe is producing this for the long term? Is this a capitalism issue? Where what is the wh- where do you land on that side of the thing? I don't want to put words in your mouth or assume one yeah. way or another. Yeah, no, and uh, you're right. I mean, I, I get on these kind of tangents because this is such a big topic. It's so big and so impactful that it it really staggers me to think about it. But yeah, to tie it back to domestic coffee and Southern California specifically, as opposed to just Hawaiian, to me, we're producing enough coffee in El Salvador and Nicaragua and Panama and Ecuador and Brazil and Colombia and all those places Indonesia, Kenya, all, all those places that 
I'm not thinking that a Southern California coffee growing phenomenon, as it could be envisioned by Jay Rusky and Fringe Coffee, is actually going to take away from those places, right? We'd be just another source and, and, and hopefully a good one, uh, given the rationale of the high elevation, high latitude type stuff. What I do love about domestic coffee um, is that it really highlights the inequities of the price of a cup of coffee. So I got to drink coffee with Jason Mraz and it was pretty nice. And then the next day after I tasted it, the local roaster, Bird Rock Coffee, who was roasting it, put it up for sale at their shops for just the weekend. Cause it's such a small farm that they knew that a weekend in their five or six locations would sell all the coffee. And that coffee sold for a pretty high price per cup. What, what would you consider like a high price for a cup of coffee, Ryan? Well, I mean... I can get a cup for about 75 cents at the diner, but in general, I pay, I think I, I pay between three and $5 for a cup of coffee plus tip. So maybe a high price, seven, eight bucks. Okay. So this Jason Mraz coffee, which was a geisha variety, which we talked about last, last week, this Jason Mraz coffee, which was very nice, costs $35 per cup. Per cup, not per like bag to take home. That's correct. Per cup. It's a lot of uh, that's a lot of scratch for a cup of coffee, Chris. It's a lot of scratch. So, and I'm glad you mentioned what you could expect to pay in a diner because that's the other half of it, right? So, if you're thinking anywhere from 75 cents to now 35 dollars, it's 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 just it just boggles the mind. It's the same it's the same thing, right? 75 cents, 35 dollars. You're getting the same 12 ounces of brown liquid that has caffeine in it, and you know tastes sort of bitter, and you know like. Is coffee. Well, sure, but ideally the $35 one is going to be of a better quality or going to have certain characteristics that are that are more valuable to you than, say, the, the cup of coffee at the diner. Is it 50 times better? Well, you don't know this diner. <laughs> that's that's a fair <laughs> point, you know, but I do know the $35 Jason Mraz coffee. Yeah, I, I don't know. I think that it's like anything where at some point you hit a price point and everybody's price point will be a little different where it doesn't matter if it's good or bad anymore. All you're thinking about is what you paid for it. And maybe that's a like a, a trophy that you were able to pay that much. Or in my case, it's like, how can I enjoy something this much when it costs me more than, you know, going to the movies or or more than, you know, half a, a grocery order or something. And so I think it just kind of depends on, on where you, you fall on that line. Yeah, And it's all relative, too, to how much money is in your pocket. Oh, for sure. For sure. But, you know, you think about a diner coffee and, you know, you used to be able to get a diner coffee for a quarter, you know, um, and now you can still get it for, let's just say a dollar instead of 75 cents. So it's gone up in price four times. Has that really reflected what a coffee farmer can be expected to be paid? Is it really following along? Are we really making sure that this coffee industry thing that we're talking about is sustainable? And again, sustainable as in, can I expect to continue getting a cup of coffee till the end of my life or until I'm medically unable to drink it? And the answer is, is not simple, obviously. And I don't think the answer necessarily is that we need to start paying $35 for a cup of coffee. And thank goodness, because then I wouldn't be able to afford it. <laughs> but, you know, I love that you said 3 to $5 because I think really that is a pretty reasonable price point to expect people to be paying for coffee from, 
these countries that are third world countries where a, a $3, $5 cup of coffee can actually go a fair ways. You know, when, when the pennies from that $5 that you just spent on coffee trickle down into the hands of the farmer, however many pennies out of that $5 ultimately gets back to the person who grew it, processed it in this third world country. I think $5 is a pretty good spot. Now, Hopefully, I'm doing one of these cool things where my subconscious is processing tons of data and $5 is actually you know, a reasonable amount. But have I worked through a bunch of math and figured out what the dollar is that makes you know, the cup of coffee sustainable for 2021 or 2030 or you know, 2035 or what have you? Obviously, I haven't done all that math because I'm just not that smart. Um, but I think... You know, at least $5 is starting to get into a realm that's practical, where $2 for a cup of coffee, $1 for a cup of coffee, you're giving in to those people that are manipulating the sea price because buying that $1 or $2 cup of coffee is ultimately supporting commodity grown coffee, which is going to be grown at such a low level that it, it can only survive on the dregs of this manipulated market price. There's an awesome moral high road you get to take from spending $5 on a cup of coffee. You're not interviewing anybody from Starbucks. You're not interviewing anybody from Folgers. You know, and these are the companies, and Starbucks does better than Folgers, but that doesn't mean that they're, they're doing everything they can to keep these coffee farmers going. And I think we really do need to do everything we can because it's not just a problem that us intellectual first world hipsters consider on talking about. This is, this is a crisis for these people that are growing this coffee. Having the commodity price hit a new low within the last couple of years is a crisis that is killing people. And all you need to do to fix it is buy a $5 cup of coffee instead of a $2 cup of coffee. I'm going to push back just a little bit on on that comment is in all you have to do, which I think there's actually another level in this, this teeter-totter. And that is, I think ultimately what we're talking about is our $5 cup of coffee, some of that money or a chunk of that money is trickling you know, through the path of of this coffee, like it's traveling along the same path as this coffee from the farm to a broker, to a roaster, to a coffee shop, to me. And I'm sure there's a few other stops along the way there, or, you know, whether I get it from a grocery or, or a, whatever. Yeah. But the assumption is that someone like you who has a coffee shop is taking the time and the effort to create partnerships, either with farms like you've done with, with Costa Rica or with the products that you are sourcing to know that that is where that money is going, that it's not being taken out of that system somewhere along, along the line. Because what you just said to me was really interesting in that the C price, when I hear C price, I think coffee price, the, the, the cost of, of buying coffee and trading coffee has reached an all-time low. And yet it seems anecdotally that there are more fancy coffee shops per capita than ever before and that we are paying more for our cups of coffee. I know that I certainly am. Uh, but I'm assuming that when I pay my five or my six or whatever dollars for my cup of coffee, that that coffee shop is then working to ensure that that money goes down the chain further. And I don't have to to do that that research. I don't have to, to find out. I'm assuming that 
coffee cycles, making sure that the people they work with are treating farmers ethically and sustainably, that, you know, Steady State is doing the same and Zumbar is doing the same. And, but that is part of that, that teeter totter of awareness, because if the coffee price has hit an all time low, and yet as a consumer, I feel like on average, we are paying more somewhere along the line, some of that money is disappearing from the chain. Well, you know, and, and I think what we're talking about now is, is transparency, which is a really important part of sustainability in terms of just knowing, knowing for, for hard fact that, that the money is going there. That's what I mean when I say transparency. You know, and I agree. I think transparency, which could be another hour long conversation. Obviously, we've been we've been covering this for quite a bit. And it all started with asking about, you know, the trend of domestic coffee. And I think ultimately, again, correct me if I'm if I'm misinterpreting you, but ultimately what we're saying is that whether it's domestic or whether it is coming from overseas in a more traditional place that the the places where coffee is being grown and being produced and being processed before it gets to uh, that cool spot that I like to go to get my cup of coffee or that place that's sending me my beans every few weeks on a coffee subscription, that the goal is that regardless of where it's coming from, that the people in the process are being treated fairly and in a way that means that they can sustain their business and their jobs for the long term. And it's less about me getting the best deal it's about getting a fair deal that also supports an entire system. And I think where we're, where we're landing on that is there's all different levels of coffee. You know, maybe a $5 cup isn't right for me, but, you know, or, and maybe a $35 cup isn't right. And maybe a 75 cent cup isn't right. But somewhere along the line, there's going to be a balance where, where the coffee that we're buying and drinking every day is, in fact, supporting an entire ecosystem of people who work in the coffee industry. And instead of allowing ourselves to be, I don't want to say blinded, but maybe instead of just being willing to ignore, you know, a veil across what we're purchasing, just being more aware. These are shops or these are roasters or these are places that work hard to make sure that this money does go to the people who are growing this product that the, you know, that people aren't being taken advantage of along the line. And that can be very, very difficult, I think, but worth doing, uh, rewarding. And, uh, but it is something that when you mentioned transparency just now, I feel like that is, you wouldn't think that it'd be so difficult to find out where your money is going, but often <laughs> it is. And as, as a community of coffee drinkers and lovers, we need to demand that kind of transparency. If the end result is that, we realize that we've been taking advantage of a system for a long time that we need to be willing to acknowledge that and change as well. Yeah. Well, you know, so with domestic coffee, transparency is a lot easier because you have this shorter, direct, more direct path. And so that well, that's what makes it very appealing. Or one of the things that makes it appealing. Uh, it is easier to know that, okay, my money went to Jason Mraz. Great. Even more than when I bought his single, you know, back in the day. Uh, but single, I bought the whole album. Chris. All right. That's my boy. But, you know, we talk about how it feels like the price of coffee has gone up because we're spending this money on it already. And every person that we pull, cause Ryan, you used to drink awful coffee. You used to drink awful coffee. I'm pointing at you right now. I am, I am looking right at you and I am pointing at you 
You used to drink awful coffee. It's very true. And you did not spend $5 a cup on it. No, I did not. You are a, one of our great victories, Ryan. I am so proud of you. And I, I hate saying nice things about you. You know that. I hate saying nice things about you, but I'm so proud of you because you are everything that we aspire to do in the specialty coffee world because it's not always about fixing the 75 cent cup of coffee. It's about pulling the customer from the 75 cent of coffee and putting them into the $5 cup of coffee. And the way we do that is by communicating how important this is and how big of a problem it is. And so instead of just taking one person, one Ryan, and pulling them from the 75 cent and putting them on the $5, we've now put you on a podcast where you're pulling other people in and you're doing exactly what we wanted to do in the first place. Because all this transparency stuff that we do as specialty coffee purveyors that specialize in direct trade and have this moral commitment to good coffee grown well and paid for ethically. All this stuff that we do, sure, I can try to sell myself on it, but I'm not necessarily trying to talk about it because I want to get all the people that care about that to come to my shop. I'm talking about that so that I can get all the people that come to my shop to come back to my shop, to come and try other shops that are really cool that are doing something similar, and then tell their friends about it and tell their friends how important it is. So, is Jason Mraz's coffee, is Jay Rusky's coffee going to be the next big thing in coffee? I don't know. I'm not an agriculture expert. I totally told you to make sure to give that disclaimer at the beginning of this episode. But is it so important to have that roaster sell Jason Mraz coffee for $35 so that there's a conversation about how expensive a cup of coffee can be? What's more reasonable, $0.75 cents or $35? And honestly, all my expertise and all the years I've spent in coffee, I don't know which one is more unreasonable and I don't know which one is more reasonable. I can't decide, but I know that they're both unreasonable and they're both reasonable. There's something about both of them, right? Like I can't spend $35 a day on a cup of coffee, but I can't live with myself spending 75 cents a day on coffee. So somewhere in the middle, there has to be something that makes me sleep at night and also makes me also able to feed myself beyond just drinking coffee. So just the conversation is so important. It, it really is. I think that $35 cup of coffee, what it does is it, it makes it, if that is what they're demanding because of the supply and demand or what they think it's worth, then there has to be something said for what we think coffee from other places are worth as well. And if it took, if that's what they're, they're charging, not necessarily because of the person who grew it, because at some point that'll go away and, and this will still be a more premium expensive price product. What went into the creation of it? What were the expenses of making it? And it's probably certainly a lot more than it would be if they were selling it for that bucket cup. Yeah. And so we need to be aware of that. Chris, uh, thank you again. Uh, we're at the end of season two, your willingness to share you know, just your knowledge with me and with this community of people who follow the Roast West Coast podcast and newsletter, uh, just coffee lovers. It's in incredibly generous to spend your time. Uh, I can only repay you by singing your praises. Don't sing. Don't sing. No singing. <laughs> I won't sing. I'll repay you by not singing your praises. I could probably just pay you too, which would seem appropriate considering the conversation that we just had. I would like to say thank you and just and thank you for sharing uh, as much. And I can't wait to just have a cup of coffee 
together somewhere out in the world, no microphone, <laughs> swapping stories and ideas, and at least uh, you know one really good hug. One really good hug. Absolutely. That sounds great to me. I just, I'm so grateful for the community of people you've put together. I'm so grateful for this chance to talk to people about something I'm so passionate about. Um, I might be unable to drink coffee at some point in the future, but I will always care about how big an impact it can have on so many people's lives. It's a really, really cool thing. And it helps me wake up, which is great. I I mean, I'm not going to lie. I spent all of the time. I spent all of these two seasons recording these just to get to this point where you said these nice things about me, Chris. <laughs> that was my goal from the beginning. Yeah, I hate that you have that recorded. <laughs> you know, if I just said it as a one-off, it would be, you know, it would be one thing, but like you literally can play this back for me next time I mean to you. It's it's it things a little bit, I'm not gonna lie. Well, I will see you soon. I appreciate you and uh I will make sure that I am always drinking good coffee because of you. Well, thanks everybody for following suit and thank you for leading the way, Ryan. Did did you guys hear that too? Did everyone hear that? I am pretty sure Chris said some very nice things about this show and even me. I'm going to snip that out, put it on a loop, and play it from a boombox in front of his shop someday. During the show, Chris brought up the rules around labeling Hawaiian coffee as Kona, so I looked it up. And he was right on. According to the Hawaii Coffee Industry Organization and the Hawaii Coffee Association, in an effort to protect Hawaiian coffees from being misrepresented in blends, they mandate that if a Hawaiian coffee is used and the coffee is named on the package, i.e. Kona coffee, then that package must represent the coffee accurately and the blend must contain a minimum of 10% by weight of the origin named. The label must also clearly state that percentage and there are rules about the size of the font on the label. There have been arguments put forth by Hawaiian coffee farms that 10% is not enough to distinguish a Kona coffee as having the quality that accurately represents the Kona coffee farmer. And there have been efforts made to change the current statute. You can find details about that on KonaCoffeeFarmers.org. As recently as last week, a bill strengthening labeling requirements and introducing an increased percentage requirements for Hawaiian-grown coffee blends to be labeled as such was deferred by the House Judiciary Committee. The minimum percentage of Hawaiian-grown coffee in a blend labeled Kona would have gone from 10% to 51% over a three-year period. For today's show about domestic coffee farms, it is important to note that Chris and I do not discuss his answers before we record the show. With all my guests, I usually pass a few emails back and forth with some potential show topics, but I really try to be learning along with you as the show is being recorded. Chris's feelings about coffee farming are his own. I don't say that to discredit them, not in the least, but rather to say that it was really intriguing to hear his perspective, compare it to Kyle Rose's experience with Blue Tail Coffee Grove, and also Jay Rusky's perspective about where he sees the Fringe Coffee Network pushing the boundaries of the industry. If you've been listening to all of these episodes, you've heard all of their perspectives and how coffee has impacted all of the roasters, cafe owners, baristas, and so on that have joined this show, and you will have to make your own decisions. I find myself conflicted, and for now, I'm willing to engage the topic on a case-by-case basis. What I am not conflicted about is how much I appreciate the coffee professionals that help create this drink that is so much a part of all of our lives and connects us across the globe. Season 2, hopefully the last in a state of COVID-19 quarantine or COVID-19 anything, was just a blast to record, edit, and share with all of you. The support and warmth and genuineness that have come back to me from the audience and the guests has been one of those true bright spots in an otherwise very long year. 
Thank you for listening today. Thank you for listening yesterday and last week, and I hope into the future. I would keep doing this show even if it was only me getting to talk to my guests and learn on my own, but it has been so incredibly rewarding, inspiring, and motivating to see this burgeoning Roast West Coast coffee community continue to grow. If you are listening and looking for a place to connect over coffee, well, you've found it. I'm here, and we are here to join you on your own coffee journeys. If you have a question about coffee for me or any of the show's guests, please reach out on RoastWestCoast.com, at RoastWestCoast on Instagram or Facebook, and if you're looking to pick up a Roast sticker, I'll post about my sticker drops at Roast Industry Legacy Partner Cafes and Roasteries on Instagram. The Season 2 Industry Legacy Partners, Marea Coffee, Leap Coffee, Zumbar Coffee and Tea, Steady State Roasting, Cafe La Terre, Coffee Cycle, Moster Coffee, Cape Horn Coffee, and First Light Whiskey really helped motivate me to keep improving the show week after week not only by sharing their stories with me over the last two seasons, but for showing support for uplifting the craft coffee community and continuing to push for excellence and improved products and experiences for us all, even after achieving their own success. All of the links to this show's Roast Industry Legacy Partners are on the front of RoastWestCoast.com or in this episode's show notes, wherever you happen to be listening. That's it. Season two is over. I'll hopefully run into you at a cafe somewhere. This show will be back after a summer hiatus for a season three. Until then, head to RoastWestCoast.com for regular coffee content. Thank you all. This episode of the Roast West Coast podcast has been written, produced, and recorded by me, Ryan Wolt. I hope this show has found you happy, healthy, and with at least enough sanity to make it through the day. And please, always be sure to drink good coffee. Hey everybody, you made it to the end. Thank you for listening to the Roast West Coast Coffee Podcast. We just finished Season 2, but the brainstorming for Season 3 has already begun. If you have been enjoying this program, please consider leaving a tip or purchasing a subscription at RoastWestCoast.com or on our Anchor.fm homepage. There are links to that in this show's notes. Your support really helps grow the show, and it enables me to bring you more great coffee content. Again, subscribe on RoastWestCoast.com or click the link to the Anchor.fm homepage. I hope to see you out at the coffee shop sometime soon.